I had the option of going either to Davis or to Cornell. Mm -hmm. It's accepted to both, and it came down to it. Cornell was more expensive. Mm -hmm. They weren't offering me any scholarships, <laughs> but I went there anyway because I know that they were teaching about East Coast winemaking. Mm. Hello, welcome to another episode. I'm here at the beautiful Linganore Wine Cellars in scenic Mount Airy, Maryland. About to sit down with Melissa Allen, a third generation winemaker, and we're gonna talk about Maryland wine. My name is Howard Fletcher, and this here podcast is called The Number One Two. Go downtown for a bucket of nipple. Mac and cheese in the side of me. I want to go downtown for a bucket of deck bones. They right next door to the taste of free. This is the little break where I usually tell you about the wine cellar and a little history on the family, a little background before we get into the interview. But Melissa can do such a better job of that than I can, as most of my guests can. And for those of you who are previous listeners, you know this. I love to show up to record these at the wineries when they're working at full tilt and this particular day we recorded these outside when they were doing some work on the ground so you'll hear some of that background noise but that's just Lingador wine cellars working hard to get to the great products they produce and so with no further ado here is Melissa Allen of Lingador wine cellars okay we're here here at Lingador wine cellars in Mount Airy Maryland and I'm here with Melissa Allen who is the head winemaker? Uh, I technically can't say that. We'll just put me as winemaker for right now. <laughs> <laughs> but she is the third generation, third generation. Uh, in, of yeah. the Allen family who's been here. Yep. And so first, uh, let me t tell me a little bit about your family's journey building this place and coming here. And how did you get in the wine business? Gotcha. So my grandparents are from Brooklyn and Queens in New York. And they met and started a family um, back in the early 50s. But my grandmother's Italian, my grandfather's German-Swiss, so growing up we always made wine in the basement. That's just kind of what they did. Um, so when they moved down here in 76, they bought this 230-acre dairy farm. And to this day, you can ask my grandfather why he did it, and all he will say is that it had a house big enough for the six kids. <laughs> but there's obviously some other motive because he put in grapes when they moved here, six acres of grapes. Um, and then in 1974, my great-grandfather gave up making wine in his cellar in Brooklyn, New York. And he handed mm. down two hand crank crushers and one hand basket press. And so in 74, my grandfather said, well, we have grapes. We've got, um, we have the equipment, we've got grapes in the ground, and we've got the knowledge. We might as well just open a winery. And so you started with just the hand crusher. Yeah. The first year, they crushed and pressed six tons of grapes by hand. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Now, that wine that was made originally, mm -hmm. did they sell it, or was it just for they, entertaining, or what did they do with it? <laughs> they sold it. I asked that question a while ago, too, mm -hmm. and um, the, the answer was, when you're starting a business, you sell everything you can. So we yeah. don't even have any bottles left to try for later. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So the name, Lingador, where does that? Ah, Lingador is the name of the area. So mm -hmm. there's a Lingador High School, there's Lake Lingador, and there's mm -hmm. a small town of Lingador, which is about three houses. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just, it was an Indian tribe that used to live in this area. Yes. Um, the name, when I've looked into what it means, there's a couple of different routes that I'm finding. One means falling waters, and Ridge Road, which is Route 27 right there in Mount Airy, mm -hmm. is the first place, as you're, I believe, as you're coming 
from the ocean where the waters don't fall directly to the Chesapeake mm -hmm. or to a river to the Chesapeake. They fall out. They fall west first. They literally fall the opposite direction oh. and then make their way to the Potomac and then out to the Chesapeake. Um, that's one story. The other story <laughs> is that Lingenor sounds really similar to the words left and ear in German. And they talked about this Indian chief who lived in the area and he was the last one here and the German settlers came and chopped off his left ear. Oh, no. Right. And so they <laughs> called him Chief Left Ear, yeah. which then ends up sounding like Linganore, and that's how Linganore got its name. Wow. Yeah. That's a little bit more colorful than, it, it uh, is. Yeah. than the river story. Yeah. Okay, so you are a third-generation winemaker. Correct. Uh, besides growing up in the business, tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Did you just learn this from your family or yeah, anything sure. outside? Um, so growing up, uh, when I was about 10, I decided I wanted to be a secretary <laughs> because I thought being a secretary, I could work with my dad, um, all day, which is what I wanted to do. And I also wanted to be an artist. And at the time, we had Miss Carol, who was our secretary, and she was really cool. Uh -huh. So I, I could be that, too. And so I told my family I wanted to be a secretary when I grew up. And my family wasn't keen on that. <laughs> and, but the thing is, at 10 years old in Maryland, there were 12 other, 12 other wineries, and not a single one of them had female winemakers. So mm. I just didn't think that was a thing that, sure. you know, no one told me I couldn't. I just didn't think it was a thing. Um, my grandma had one of the wine publications called Wine Business Monthly in her house and had a picture of Gina Gallo on the front of it. And not every 10-year-old knows the name Gallo, but I happen to know the name Gallo at 10. And my grandma was like, you know who this is? And I was like, no, who is it? She's like, oh, it's Gina Gallo. Her grandparents run Gallo and she's the winemaker. I was like, oh. <laughs> it's like at that point is when I was like, oh, I could be a winemaker too. So then around 12, I guess, I changed my mind, decided that I wanted to be a winemaker. Mm -hmm. And we started getting rumors that they were all starting to do a undergraduate degree at Cornell. Mm -hmm. And so I put my mind to that and got through middle school and high school, made it into Cornell and finished up there. I did a, a four-year viticulture, which is grape growing, and enology, mm -hmm. which is winemaking degree. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, I was a winemaker and distiller in Indiana for three years. And then a little brief stint for harvest in New Zealand. And then when I moved from Indiana, I moved out to Oregon. And did a harvest out there and traveled back here. But this is, I think, seven different wineries is where I've worked so far. Wow. Yeah. Okay, well, tell me this, because uh, you are the first uh, winemaker I've met mm -hmm. who, when they got a formal education, got it on the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, everyone, let me think, I'm pretty sure everyone went to UC Davis. UC Davis or who, Fresno or, or Cal Poly. Yeah, or, yeah. Who I've spoken to has gone to UC, UC Davis. Davis. Mm -hmm. One thing they tell me about the education out there is that, naturally, because of where it's located, they tend to learn more about winemaking from a West Coast sensibility because that's what you're dealing with. That's the terrain you're in, that, right. all that. exactly. So here you're back East. Uh, did you benefit, do you feel like you benefited from learning this terrain in school that way or did it make a difference? Yes, most definitely made a difference. Um, I had the option of going either to Davis or to Cornell. Mm -hmm. I was accepted to both and it came down to it. Cornell was more expensive. Mm -hmm. They weren't offering many scholarships, <laughs> but I went there anyway because I know that they were teaching about East Coast winemaking. Mm -hmm. We're talking high pHs, low TAs, and we're talking yeah. rain and mildew and disease and pests. And when I worked in Napa and I talked to them about things like this, they're like, What's grapevine berry moth? Like, what, what do you mean? What's grapevine berry moth? Like, you don't know about spraying for that? You right. know, like, you know, they always oh, spray twice a year sulfur. I was like, that's it. We spray every ten days. You know, we've got, we've got to keep these plants alive in the climate that we're working with here. Right. Um, there's been several wine, wine wineries, maybe a couple of decades ago, that would hire 
someone with a UC Davis degree, and then I really have to retrain them because they don't know what they need to know about being a winemaker on the East Coast. It's a very different animal. Tell me about where we are. What makes this location good for growing grapes? Ah, uh, yes. So we are in like what they consider the foothills or like the end of the Piedmont here in Maryland. Mm -hmm. So about 40 miles um, west of here are the Appalachian Mountains. Mm -hmm. And so in this section here, we get um, some of the cool air that comes from the mountains, mm -hmm. but also we've got um, very hilly terrain right where we are. Mm -hmm. And since we're in Mount Airy, we always have a gentle breeze, more or less, that comes through. So our elevation here is about five to 600 feet. I think the tallest point is about 680, mm -hmm. um, which allows for us to grow a variety of things depending, you know, and, and still being able to eliminate frost or winter damage for less cold hardy things. So up on top of this hill um, that we can see here is our Petit Verdot and our Syrah. And mm -hmm. up there is, you definitely don't have any risk of frost, but down at the base of the lane when you came in, it's much lower. And so the things down there are hybrids that are more frost resistant. Well, I guess it was pretty fortuitous that you found a, your grandfather yeah. found a house. It was big enough for six kids. <laughs> big enough for I six like, kids. At this perfect place. At this yeah. perfect place. So yeah. um, you mentioned that, okay, when you first, first started, what was it, six acres they planted? Six acres, yeah. How many acres are you planting now? We're about uh, between 70 and 80 acres at this point. Wow. Yeah. Originally, was that the size of the land, or, or did you acquire more no. as you went on? So we bought 200, they bought 230 acres when they moved here. So we still have more acres to plant as we grow. Some of it's swamp, some of it's in woods right now. We've mm -hmm. got to you know, clear any of that out. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll probably, over the next five years, I would say, we're going to increase to about um, probably about 100 acres, hmm. somewhere in there in the next five years, five to ten years. Now, are you going to have to do... Is that land cleared, or, do, or will you have to do something to some the land? Some of it's cleared, and some of it we'll have to clear. We've got mm -hmm. a few sections of woods that we're looking at clearing as well. You've gone down to Virginia, and you've looked at some other uh, vineyards down there, yeah. I'm assuming. Yep. Uh, is this part of Maryland? Uh, I know that the Mid-Atlantic, in general, is not too much different, even though it does the, the land expresses itself differently mm -hmm. and weather in different areas. But... Uh, as opposed to, say, some areas like in Loudoun County or Northern Virginia, how is this area different, or is it different? Um, so in Loudoun County, Northern Virginia, it is very similar there. Um, they, some of that area can get up more into the mountains. Mm -hmm. They do get higher elevations. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's slightly cooler temperatures. So something like Viognier, you know, which is really mm -hmm. popular in that area, um, ripens up fairly well. There's a few Maryland wineries that are messing around with Viognier, but not nearly as much as they have down in Virginia at that right. at that point. And right now, honestly, with the climate change that's going on, we're being we're seeing that we can ripen our reds way better now than we could 10 years ago. And we've planted grapes that my dad wanted to plant 30 years ago and just wasn't going to happen. Uh -huh. So um, I think in this area in particular, since we're not right at the base of the mountains, uh, it does st tend to stay a little bit hotter um, throughout the summer and hopefully less rainy, although not this year. <laughs> Now, the, the grapes of that initial six acres, mm -hmm. what grapes were planted uh, at that point? It's funny. Someone asked me this this weekend, and I didn't know the answer. Oh, um, okay. But I, I know that my dad said one of the original grapes we had here was Vignol, uh, which is one of my favorites, and we still have it on the property. Vignol is a grape that, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I don't see it a lot. Mm -mm. No. If at all. Right. Yeah, it's a very... <laughs> Anywhere. It, I worked with it when I was in Indiana as well, but um, mm -hmm. it is kind of a rarer hybrid. It's not as popular as, say, like, Chamberson is in this mm -hmm. area. 
Um, what I really like about it is it's got a very good melon and tropical fruit um, sort of nose to it, but that yeah. carries a lot of acidity. Mm -hmm. So what we do with it here is we actually age it in barrels and to help break down that acidity and round out the mouthfeel. Um, and most, most wineries, because of that natural acidity, actually end up doing it sweet, mm -hmm. but here we do it completely dry. So how long have you been a part of the decision-making operation The, the winemaking team yes, here? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I uh, came back here last January, so January 2017. Okay. So I've been back here for about a year and a half. Okay. Well, then maybe I'm going to ask the question. What I was going to ask you was, uh -huh. if it had been a few years previous, uh, are there any varieties or wines that you have decided to venture out on and, and, and do that you weren't doing before? I guess the question would be more accurate, or the better question would be, are there any things <laughs> that you would like to do in the future that you're not doing now? Yeah. Yes, definitely. And um, I've been working with Ray Mitchum, our head winemaker, mm -hmm. to um, come up with a program that maybe allows for a little bit more experimentation um, now that we've got some more knowledge around and some more people to manage. You know, when thing harvest comes down, there's a lot going on, mm -hmm. so it's hard to add one more wine. We already make 36 of them, so like, right. another one's a lot. Um, last year we did, um, together we worked on the Albarino. It was our first harvest of Albarino that came out and we... How did that go? Oh my god, it worked all, it was awesome. The Great. wine's fantastic and Good. the whole process and everything went really well. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do a little bit more experimental stuff. I'm really interested in trying some orange wines um, mm. here, which I think would do really well in this area. And then um, I want to do some kind of weird maceration stuff with some, some reds in barrels and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so... I, this podcast is also listened to by people who are uh, new business owners. Oh yeah. Some of them romantically want to open up, you know, a, a, uh, a wine, make, you know, yeah. because they love wine and they want to make it. <laughs> or you know, I, I interview breweries and same thing. I love yeah. craft beer. I want to be a brewer. I'll get into it. But whether you're a craft brewer or a winemaker or just a small business owner, you know, there are different things that come up. Right. That you don't expect. Definitely. Now you now you are you know you are came to a relatively established, well-established place. So maybe a lot of those bumps in the road have been tackled. But is there anything you would tell a new uh, winemaker if I told you, hey, uh, Melissa, I want to open a, a winery? <laughs> you know, what would you, what kind of advice would you give me? To do? Uh, that's a really good question. So you see a lot of that happening here in Maryland, yes. people opening wineries. Oh, yeah. it's romantic, it's a retirement <laughs> project. So wineries are a lot of work. Um, usually a lot more work than people are willing to, to think about. So the, probably the first thing I'd tell you is just be ready for whatever's going to come. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, the winery, the way it works, is it's a lot of startup costs. Mm -hmm. So you've got to take that into consideration and make sure you're not skimping on things that really should get a lot of attention to them. It seems to me that winemaking is, is very labor-intensive, meaning yeah. like manual labor-intensive. Yes, is that a challenge or are you finding, you know, you hear a lot about the economy is doing well and there are jobs that are yeah. available. How, what kind of challenges do you have as far as labor is concerned or is that not a problem? Um, it definitely does become a problem. We want people, when we go to hire for our seller team, we want people who are knowledgeable and at least if they're not knowledgeable about winemaking to begin with, at least passionate about it, mm -hmm. you know. But I think that's for any job that you're hiring for, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but yes, it is very labor intensive. So finding someone who can do it day in and day out, you sit down maybe if you take lunch. Mm -hmm. You know, that's it. You're not sitting at all during the day. You know, I'm, I wear hiking shoes every day because they're the most comfortable and they're waterproof right. because right. I'm with water all the time. Right. Um, 
and finding someone like 50 pound, be able to lift 50 pounds repeatedly for hours on end, you know, as part of the job description. Mm -hmm. So we do have, you know, when you put an all call out, it isn't, you know, loads of great candidates. It's like maybe a small handful that that's worth interviewing. Right. It, it seems like there, it might be like a delicate uh, a balance as far as incorporating automation, um, as far as, as like picking grapes or tending the vines. Right. Yeah. Uh, how have you found that transition? I would imagine, see, you know, you said your grandfather started with a hand press. Right. I would imagine when you were a, a child and, you know, your family was out uh, working the, the vines, they might do it, they were doing it differently, maybe, than, than they... Somehow when you're reading it now? Th yeah. Yeah, definitely. So in 99, we bought our mechanical harvester, which okay. was the state's first. And it just kind of changed the game, really. Um, when you use a mechanical harvester, different trellising systems are sometimes required to get um, the best harvest and not harm the grapes as much. Mm -hmm. um, so all of our, like, the large production or larger production, I guess, sweet wines are all harvested mechanically. But you don't get the attention that you want and the detail to each individual cluster that way. So all of our dry wines are still picked by hand. Yeah, I understand there's some grapes Mm -hmm. that are difficult because the wood is tough yeah or they're clustered really tightly, tightly right. so it's hard to right. pick them by machine right and you don't want to like whack the living living daylights out of the grape you know just to get the grapes off and you know sometimes it's just more better for the grape overall if you just go out and hand pick it which takes a lot more time <laughs> tell me about an american viticultural area because i'm i understand that's what yeah, you like, are. That we are. Yes. So right now we're sitting in the Linganore American Viticultural Area. Uh -huh. So what that means is it is a government designated, a federally designated area of the United States that has specific features that make it unique from areas around it to grow grapes. Uh -huh. So Napa Valley is an AVA. The Willamette Valley is an AVA. Now within those AVAs there are sub AVAs. Now. Maryland only has three AVAs, and there's no sub-AVAs, um, so we're still really young. But my dad and my grandfather actually applied and built the entire thing, the AVA, the whole application and mm -hmm. everything for it, in 84. And they're the ones who got it started. It was the first AVA. Now, what that means for a winery is that if you're within an AVA and you grow grapes on your property and you, um, and you produce that wine from those grapes in your winery, um, then you get to put a state bottled on the bottle. Mm. And so, but in order to do that, you must also list Linganore AVA or whatever AVA it is. Right. So you, all of our dry wines that are, are fully estate bottled um, say estate bottled on them. So Linganore being the location, mm -hmm. uh, are there, how, how large is the Linganore um, AVA? I believe it's about 90 square miles. Okay. So there are yeah. some, there. There's many other wineries that are part of it. Yes. They're a part of it. Um, however marketing reasons right they i don't think any of them use the state bottled because then you have to put <laughs> linganore ava on your bottle right right so like, it wasn't quite maybe all the way thought through in 84 but right that's how it is for right now <laughs> well you know it, it, hopefully you know it, you know one of the things that i'm, I'm trying to accomplish here and, I, and i'm sure your family has since the beginning mm -hmm. is that linganore or mid-atlantic or maryland like napa in california and oregon become well-known exactly. as locations right. so it won't be a hint it won't feel like it's a marketing hindrance, hindrance. right or that you're promoting someone else's vineyard if you put Linganore on, on your thing because right. you know it's it'll be 
a thing. It'll be a thing. Yeah, and actually, I'm working with um, Rachel Lippman, who is third-generation winemaker over at Lowe Vineyards, just down mm. the road from mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are trying to start a quality standards program here in Maryland for all the wine, kind of like the um, AVA, um, the Arizona Vignerons Alliance in mm-hmm. Arizona, or the VQA mm-hmm. up in Canada, or like the DOCG in Italy. Right. So we're going we're going to start one here in Maryland, so that way people know. This is a quality Maryland wine, and it's rated as quality, judged by a panel. Like, it's not necessarily like the top gold, best of class, but sure. this is quality Maryland wine here, made with the Maryland grapes wow. in Maryland. Well, I may want to come back and talk to you about that process because yeah. uh, I'd like to know what's involved in it. <laughs> Definitely. Wow. So, is Low would that is, would that be in the Linganore? Yes, they're region? also within the Linganore AVA. Okay. All right. Well, oh, two more things. Sure. Uh, one is the uh, we're sitting here next to a brewery that yeah. your family has as well. That's true. That is your uncle's operation? Yeah. Or? So the way it works is that my grandma owns Linganore Mine Cellars in the land. And then mm-hmm. my dad, Anthony, and my uncle, Eric, mm-hmm. run Linganore. Okay. And then Anthony and Eric and another uncle, Victor, Uh-oh. own and operate Red Shedman Farm Brewery. Okay. And yeah. how long has that been? That's been right? there for um, four years this November. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, when I came here before, and I've heard about that, about Red Shed Man before, yeah. uh, so I, I'm assuming it's something that's doing quite well. It is, yeah. It's usually popping right along, yeah. and you know, on the weekends, pretty pretty packed. And yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of, it's nice that you all have been able to develop, you know, the brewery as well as the winery, and they're right next to each right. other. That's, it, that's really It is cool. really convenient. You see, you know, couples come up, and, you know, he wants a beer, and she wants a wine, and... <laughs> Right there, they split. Right. They go two different ways, and they meet up back here on the patio, and they listen to the band. And I, um, when I was in Louisville, I was a distiller for three years, and mm-hmm. I really miss distilling. So I've become friends with kind of some of the distilleries here in Frederick. So I wouldn't be surprised if down the road there was a distillery here as well. Is there a grape uh, that you don't grow here now that you want to grow? Not not a, not something like a uh, uh, that you create but sure but a particular variety or something that you'd like to get into that's a good question we've got a few spots open you know when you think about planting varieties or anything like that you've mm-hmm. got to think about what your site selection is right just because you've got an area doesn't mean it's best for all varieties yeah. um, so we've got an area right now that we think we're probably going to extend some more Chardonnay into that it would work really well to extend our expand our Chardonnay program um, personally I'm a huge fan of Rieslings and we were mm-hmm. talking about this before right. but uh, you, you really shouldn't be growing Riesling, in my opinion, in Maryland. They yeah. get too ripe. Um, and I love Gewürztraminer as well, but uh, I think that's also a tough one to do. Yeah. Um, as far as other things to try out, um, Gamay Noir seems pretty cool, but I'm not sure it can last in this area. But I think something that could do really well here, since we're seeing so much success in Maryland with Albarino, is Malbec. Mm. Uh, I worked with Malbec a bit when I was in Indiana, and that was a really great grape to work with. It's mm-hmm. like Chamberson, where it's very fruit forward, but it yeah. has a really good tannin backbone to it that Chamberson doesn't have. Yeah. So it'd be kind of cool to see some Malbec on the property at some point. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, this last part is called Last Call. It's just some questions about you, okay. and uh, you can make them a long answer or a short answer. It makes no okay. difference to me. Um, what grape do you enjoy growing the most? If Or do you have a favorite that you enjoy growing the most? Enjoy growing the most. Yeah. Um, I'm probably going to circle back to Vignol. We talked about that earlier. Yeah. I really like it. It's... Um, kind of easier to grow but it has a little bit of challenges um and i just remember the day we picked it last year it was 7 a.m there was a hot air balloon going over the vineyard and it was just so beautiful to be out there picking are there any other winemakers that looked to you since you're growing it have you ever had anyone inquire about 
Um, actually, we had a them. winemaker roundtable, which is when the Maryland Wine Association they set up these roundtables. So if you've got your winery or right. winemaker, you've got questions, just bring your wines, and we'll all sit down and talk about it, like as a winemaking industry. Right. So we had one here on Tuesday, and we tasted our 2017 Vignole with the group for the first time, and everyone was really interested in the grape because they haven't really tried it before. Yeah. So they were all asking us loads of questions about it. Yeah, um, that's that's nice. Now, um, just on the side about yeah. another grape that I see in Virginia. Semi-often, but I haven't seen in Maryland yet, is Norton. Do you, does <laughs> any, does, is it hard to grow here? No. Or does anyone, no one likes it? Yeah, there we go. It's probably more along that. <laughs> so we had Norton. We had Norton okay. for a very long time. Right. And then um, it was actually the front, <laughs> it was the front grape um, on coming in the lane, and it was all gnarly and didn't uh -huh. look nice. And uh -huh. um, we were both, at that point only using it for our port program. Um, it has this weird kind of bubblegum candy yeah. corn sort of flavor yeah. to it. It's, yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's a pleasant grape, but yeah. I, I get the point of growing it. I've well, seen you, it done well, well a couple of times, yeah, but yeah. it is a difficult one. Well, you must not be alone because I don't see it here. Yeah, and I, I don't see it, it. It was a thing many, many years ago. Right. We ripped our Norton about, out about four years ago. At the request yeah. of our, when Ray Mitchum came on, he's like, guys, I will work here, but you got to rip that Norton <laughs> out. <laughs> and what, what did you replace? What did you put there? Oh, we've it? got our um, Chamberson. And Chamberson. so Chamberson grapes can grow on a few different trellising systems, but mm -hmm. typically... Um, ones that are, I hate to use the word higher quality, but ones that end up in our drier wines grow on the vertical shoot position, so where the canes go straight up into the air, the shoots go up, and the canes run across. Um, and so we've got it on that system down there, and that's all hand-picked and used for our reserve Chamberson. Mm. If you could own a vineyard, you don't have to necessarily work it, yeah. but you could. Okay. Uh, anywhere else other than <laughs> in Maryland, where would you choose to wow um you don't have to move from here you can still have this I can place still, sure okay so that's a tough question i just went up and visited my friends who are winemakers up in the finger lakes last weekend mm. and every time i enter the finger lakes i'm like oh my god it's so gorgeous here you know okay um but i really did love my time in oregon mm -hmm. um, the pinot noir out there was and working with my the winemaker it was just an inspiring experience um that i would probably say oregon oregon yeah it, wow. and it Second runner-up would be the Finger Lakes area of New York. <laughs> yeah. If you were chosen by the state of Maryland to huh. represent the state uh, in a wine competition and you had to bring two bottles, they don't have to necessarily be white and red, they can be whatever, whatever. Uh, from here to represent Maryland in a competition, what would you, what would I bring? What would you bring? Um, the first one would be Exposure, which I don't think you've tried yet. It's not released. It'll come out um, the beginning of September. Okay. And that's our Bordeaux blend. It's okay. Cab Franc, Cab Sauve, and Petit Verdot. Is there some I can try? Yeah, we'll okay. try some. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's fantastic. And uh, the second one, I think it's going to be Vignole. Honestly, I keep talking about this grape. Yeah. But we tried the new Vignole the other night. It's not yet released either, the 2017. And um, it. Now, really is it bottled as a single varietal? Is it like, is it a bottle of Vignole? It's or a bottle of Vignole. Yep, exactly. Um, and I think it's showing extremely well and it shows those two in particular the Bordeaux blend with those three strong viniferas mm -hmm. in them shows this is what Maryland can make we can make viniferas that are world-class and then bringing the hybrid that no one's heard about it's like this is what Maryland also does mm -hmm. it's like Maryland's been here for a long time you know figuring out which hybrids work and figuring out how to make them you just give them the respect that they deserve you know like people give viniferas this mm -hmm. is, you know, something else we do here as well. I think it kind of covers what Maryland should be known for. Where, where is Vignole grown? I mean, 
if I didn't come here, right? Where would I go to? Where would you go to find it? Find it. I mean, just say the grape. I mean, I'm not even. Yeah. I haven't even seen a bottle of it. Yeah, I mean. So since it's a hybrid, you're not going to find it on the West Coast. Right. You don't really grow hybrids there. Right. Um, Mid Atlantic, Midwest, um, New York. New York. Okay. Yep. Um, I'm sure that I actually I know there's plenty grown in Virginia as well. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, Melissa. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time. I know you're a busy woman. <laughs> no problem. When I drove up, you were on your on the cutting the grass, yeah. and I was like, wow, geez, I felt bad. But thank, thank no, you very. No problem. You gave me a break from cutting the grass. Okay. Perfect. Good. Good. Okay. And I'm gonna go uh, try some uh, exposure. Definitely. Th right. Thanks a lot. No problem. Bye bye. Bye. Well, there's another episode in the books. I'd like to thank a few people who helped make this whole thing possible. Melissa Allen of Linganore Wine Cellars, I'd like to thank you for your time and hospitality. If any of you are ever in the vicinity of Mount Airy, Maryland, and you're a lover of wine, I highly recommend that you stop by Linganore. They have a vast selection of wines, something for everyone's taste, from sweet to fruity to dry. And, and if you're a lover of red Bordeaux blends, as I am, uh, I think you would like it. When you're there, please ask about their wine club and ask about their exposure release when you're there. I highly recommend it. It was good. As always, Mom, thank you for having me. <laughs> and thank you for being my rock and my stabilizer. The notorious JMZ, Joan Zimmerman, thank you for your companionship, your support, and your suggestions. Your assistance and your advice has been invaluable. And Jack, you're the best pug a guy could ever want. Wherever you listen to this podcast, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blueberry, or wherever, please give us a rating and give us some feedback. I know it's a small thing, but it helps us a ton, and it's absolutely free to do. Please do it. Also, look for us on our Facebook page, The Number One Two Podcast, and like us, and follow us on Instagram as well. All of our music, including this theme song, Tasty Freeze, was created, produced, and supplied by Cadillac Grip. If you're ever in the Denver or Boulder area, go see Cadillac Grip play. Because if you ain't hip to the grip, you just ain't hip. The number one two podcast was written, recorded, engineered, produced, and screwed up by me. I'm Howard Fletcher. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. I like to drink my You know I like to party, y'all. <laughs>